Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, March 24th, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are in Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, on page 37, the third paragraph beginning with, In Some Circumstances. Today's readers are as follows. Reading the OA 12 Steps is Jason P. Reading the OA Traditions is Karen U. And reading the text are Janice M., Esther C., and Paula D. The share ID for Sunday, March 23rd, is 6082. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision for You Big Book Study, our message is, that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Jason P. to read the OA 12 steps. Good morning. This is Jason from Vermont. I'm a compulsive overeater. The 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Step number one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Step ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Step 12, 
Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Jason P. I will now ask Karen Yu to read the OA 12 Traditions. Good morning. I'm a compulsive overeater from Michigan, and my name is Karen Yu. The 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. I pass. Thank you, Karen Yu. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book in Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism, on page 37, the third paragraph, beginning with, In Some Circumstances. I will now ask Janice M. to get us started. 
Thank you, Rebecca. My name is Janice M., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. In some circumstances, we have gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. But even in this type of beginning, we are obliged to admit that our justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. We now see that when we begin to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation of what the terrific circumstances might be. (laughs) Can I relate to this paragraph oh so well? Oh, I gave, you know, I, I premeditated this. You know, I gave, I, I defended why I went out. You know, I justified. Well, you know what? You know, emotionally, I was nervous or I was tired or I was worrying about my son or my husband didn't do this particular thing the way I wanted. So, you know, I I went to, you know, I didn't go in front of a car, but I went, my solution was to eat to give me that comfort. So I was always defending, you know, supporting why I did this because, um, you know, I had to blame other purpose, you know, other people. So I did this on, on purpose. I gave a proper reason from my head, not from my body, from my head. But, you know, I know today, and I've known for, for some quite time, that, you know, I have a twofold disease. I don't have an emotional disease. This is not an emotional disease because even when I was depressed, okay, I ate. Even when I was happy, I ate. So, you know, my emotions and my feelings, feelings don't count, you know. But I thought that they did because, you know, I gave reason to. The reason was, uh, and that's all premeditated. That's that's uh, deliberately, de- deliberately highly calculated. I uh, gave reason. So now my disease, I know today, is twofold, only twofold, not threefold, twofold. An allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. And this is what we're doing in this chapter, is we're talking about that obsession of the mind. Something in my mind, because I'm not normal when it comes to compulsive overeating. I don't have that willpower. I don't care what, how much knowledge I have. That's not enough. Because why? because I am powerless. I lack the power to even think that, geez, I did this last time, and this is, you know, it's getting worse and worse, but I still do it anyway, because I lack the power. So it's the thought before the action. That's what it's all about. Premeditation, premeditated, it just doesn't happen. You know, given reason for no thought of consequences. And that's the obsession of the mind overrides, my mind, those thoughts override all rational thinking. I cannot see the truth. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Janice M. Who else would like to share on this paragraph? Eileen. Go ahead, Eileen. Thank you so much. This is Eileen, compulsive overeater from Bedford, Mass. In some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. That's what happened with me exactly. 
um, I had five years of abstinence. I came back into this fellowship in 2004, actually. It was 10 years ago. Um, and I had five years of abstinence, and I went out deliberately and picked up over the fact that my mother was diagnosed with dementia. I was not working, and the last um, cherry on whatever was that I relapsed. I chose to go out and eat. And in a way, when I look back on it now, um, there was a period of premeditation. I had thought about it. But when I actually picked it up, I just went into the store, got my drug, and had it. I, did, I put everything that I had learned in meetings and swept it right aside, you know, um, that I wasn't going to be able to sponsor again, that I wasn't going to be able to stand up at meetings and share until I had 90 days of abstinence. I, I swept it right aside and did not think of the terrific consequences of my eating again. Um, thank you, God, I was only out there for a month. One month, but I regained 10 of the 38 pounds that I had lost in a month. You know, this is a terrible, gut-wrenching disease. And for people who don't have this fellowship, if they go to Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig, you know, you know what? They're still stuck in their sickness because for whatever reason, they think that they can go out and lose their weight and then go back out and eat like a normal person. I can't. It's proven. I gained 10 pounds in a month. So, you know, I, I am forever grateful for this fellowship, for the meetings, for the phone calls that I make and I take. Um, I'm definitely obliged to admit that our justification for esprit was insanely insufficient. It was insane. I couldn't control my eating, and I had no intention of doing it. I had an intention of hurting myself with the food. Thank you for letting me share. I'll pass. Thank you, Eileen. Who else would like to share on this paragraph? Barbara. Go ahead, Barbara. Thank you. This is Barbara. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. The word that's really coming out in bright lights for me this morning reading this is the word always. And um, when the when the paragraph talks about that period of premeditation before deliberately justifying going out insanely to um, binge and turn to food again, um the word that I want to remember is what always happens. And my feeling is that if I spend enough time beforehand, mornings like this through each day, remembering the fact that it always happens. There's always this enormous price to pay, guilt, remorse, depression, uh, the phenomenon of craving being triggered and being unable to premeditate or think or have any chance of stopping until who knows when. That's inevitable. This is my life's story. So it's not going to be any different. It's just not going to amazingly change and be different. 
if I say, well, because I had this episode with my husband or my boss or my daughter or whatever it is, I'm always going to pay the price if I turn to food, thinking it's somehow going to relieve the pain of whatever I'm using as justification. And just as the... um, you know, AA 12 and 12 said, there's no such thing as justified anger. No such thing in the light of the price that is paid that justifies it. It, That is, as it says previously, that is clearly insane to think that way. So my feeling is that I have to do this premeditation long before the moment, before it happens. That's when I have to premeditate to be ready to have a storehouse uh, to ward off the insanity. Uh, thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Barbara. Anyone else? Kim? Go ahead, Kim. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. You know, this whole chapter, this is this is talking about people that are sober, people that are accident, and why they make that decision to pick up. Because our insanity is not in the allergy. The insanity is not when we're three donuts in. The insanity is why, when we're abstinent, do we succumb to the desire again? So the justification for a spree was insanely insufficient in the light of what always happened. During the period of premeditation of what the terrific consequences would be, so, you know, we're, we're Overeaters Anonymous, and we think, most of us think when we come in, that food and weight is our problem. So that's why overeating is our problem. That's why we're Overeaters Anonymous. If we really want to talk about what our problem was in the name of our fellowship, I almost think we should be called Abstinence Anonymous. Because abstinence is my true problem. When it says here, justified by nervousness, anger, depression, jealousy, or the like, I think of the doctor's opinion where it says we're restless, we're irritable, we're discontented unless we can again experience a sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So my problem is in compulsive overeating. In fact, I've become very, very proficient on compulsive overeating over decades of research. My problem is I don't know how to be abstinent. I don't know how to be comfortable in my own skin. The only thing that happens when I'm abstinent is I'm restless, I'm irritable, I'm discontent. I am so uncomfortable, and the only ease and comfort I have ever known is the food. So where we concentrate on the suddenly, the whiskey is in the milk, and we try to control the suddenly. We try to control the suddenly by avoiding people, places, and things. We try to control the suddenly with avoiding temptation. We try to control the suddenly by trying to manage our emotions because if we feel good, we're not going to eat. And I don't know about you, but there's not an emotion in this world that I will not eat over. We try to avoid our triggers. And let me tell you, my biggest trigger is just being awake. When I'm awake, I'm at at risk for picking up. So what is my chance? What are they sending us know here? They're letting us know that we need we are purely insane. What does our second step say? Our second step says, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. That is letting us know that we're insane. 
So my only hope, my only chance of not being doomed is how do I get rid of this insanity? And the only thing that I have found is a relationship with a higher power which will remove that desire, remove that obsession to eat. So if I keep concentrating on nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like, and think if I can control that, I'm not going to eat. If I think to myself, well, I'm insanely insufficient in the light of what happened, maybe I can just get enough humiliation. Maybe I can keep it green enough. That's another thing. Keep it green. Maybe if I can remember my last drink, I'm going to stay sober. But my reality as a compulsive overeater is allergy of the body treated with abstinence. And then abstinence is my true problem. So how do I get comfortable in abstinence? The only solution for someone like me, if you are seriously alcoholic as me, is a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience, a personality change, a psychic change sufficient to bring about recovery, a relationship with a power greater than myself that will remove, remove the desire again. And just to end, I'll end with with the doctor's opinion. When we do that, it says, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary is that he is required to follow a few simple rules. And those rules are living the 12 steps. And with that, I have. Thank you, Kim. This is Rebecca, and I would like to share on this paragraph. Um, What I've been thinking about is how, yeah, when I was um, nervous, anger, worried, angry, worried, depressed, jealous, or the like, I relied on food to give me ease and comfort, to free me from those awful feelings that I was feeling. And um, now, in this program, I've been taught that there's another way, and uh, it's these easy steps that instead of picking up the food, now I can practice four through nine in a step ten and uh, turn it over to God, you know, I, 11, 10, 11, and 12, or 11 and 12 as well, because now I have a relationship with a higher power who can uh, remove these problems from me and do for me what I can't do for myself instead of eating over these problems. I have a new way of living, and it's practicing these steps while the food is down. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph before we move on? Okay. Esther C. Sharon in Colorado. Um, We're going to move on. Sorry, Sharon. And then if you'd like to go after Esther speaks, you could. Go ahead, Esther. Good morning. My name is Esther C. from Canada, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Our behavior is is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a passion, say, for jaywalking. 
He gets a thrill out of skipping in front of fast-moving vehicles. He enjoys himself for a few years in spite of friendly warnings. Up to this point, you would label him as a foolish chap having queer ideas of fun. Luck then deserts him, and he is slightly injured several times in succession. You would expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Presently, he is hit again, and this time has a fractured skull. Within a week, after leaving the hospital, a fast-moving trolley car breaks his arm. He tells you he has decided to stop jaywalking for good, but in a few weeks, he breaks both legs. So this story um, of an imaginary fellow who's getting a thrill out of jaywalking, and obviously he's insane, because no matter what the consequences, and no matter how much he suffers, he's still out there running into traffic and getting and getting hurt over and over again. Now, why why bring us this ridiculous story? Why did the authors bring it? Because it's not always easy for me to see the insanity of my disease because I live it every day and it's the only life that I've known. But reading about someone else's absurd and incomprehensible behavior, which to me it's obvious that the jaywalker is insane, this shines a light on my own thinking and behavior, which to a normal eater probably seems insane, Which it, because it is insane. I hurt myself over and over again. Um, my thinking dominates me, and I do the very thing that I swore a thousand times I wasn't going to do. We, when I read this story, it reminded me of an incident that happened to me many years ago. I probably was about 20 years old, and my parents had gone away, and my siblings and I decided that we wanted to invite some friends over for lunch over the weekend. And at one point, one of them asked us if we had any nuts because he felt like having some you know, cashews or something. So I, I let him into the laundry room and of course most people just keep food where they normally keep food which is in the kitchen but since I was a compulsive overeater and I was always getting into our stash you know whatever my mother kept at home she would keep it in the laundry room you know under under lock and key not so much to prevent me from eating it because at that point I could just go out and buy it myself but that she would have it when she needed it so that you know she wouldn't uh you know open the pantry and not find what she wanted there when she had her own company so he follows me into the laundry room and I try to open the door, and it's locked, and I'm searching for the key because my mother now had to hide the key because I would find the key. And he's baffled, and he's like, you keep your candy under lock and key? And I'm looking at him and thinking, you don't, you don't keep your candy under lock and key? To me, it seemed completely normal to have to hide you know, food or to have to uh, get someone else to lock it up in order not to eat it. Um, and I couldn't see that he was normal, that I was the one that was insane, that my behavior was a little bit crazy. And this is what I was thinking about when I was reading this paragraph of the Jaywalker. This ultra-ridiculous example just shows me exactly how crazy my behavior is. Um, that when it comes to my you know, disease of compulsive overeating, my thinking is completely off. It's, it's just simply not normal. And I do the, things, the very things that I promised myself I wouldn't do. I keep doing over and over again. And so <laughs> the ridiculousness of this story really highlights for me my own crazy behavior. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther C. Sharon, would you like to share? This is Bella. Can I share? I just want to check if Sharon in Colorado wants to go. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, thanks to everyone out on the line. This is Sharon in Colorado a recovered compulsive overeater. And um, that chapter, or that, excuse me, that paragraph we just read about in some circumstances we do 
go out deliberately uh, to get drunk because of anger. And this was just so clear to me and on December 25th of 2010. I was angry at my daughter. Um, there had been an ongoing situation with two of my daughters that weren't speaking to each other. And we used to always celebrate Christmas together as a big family. And now that no longer happened. And that particular uh, Christmas, um, my other two daughters were coming to see me at individual times because that's what had to happen. And then she called and said she wasn't coming. And I was so angry. Um, and anyway, you know, that was the, I was abstinent. I was 10 months abstinent. That's, I guess, why this makes it so clear to me today. And I forgot to remember, went in, saw the nuts on the kitchen table, just like we used to have when we were kids, where you, you know, do the little implements to get them out of the shell. And that was my downfall. And it was two years later when I started listening to this um, Vision for You meeting online, and they were in the doctor's opinion. And I am just amazed that I began to see why I had never been able to stay abstinent. I could get abstinent, but I could not stay abstinent. And as a result of that, I began working these steps exactly the way they're laid out in the book. And with each resentment institution and principle I was resentful at, each one of those I had to list where I was selfish, where I was dishonest, where I was self-seeking, and where I was afraid. And that's what turned it around for me. And then the other thing is now I must live in steps 10, 11, and 12 because those restless earphone discontent thoughts will come back into my mind. And if I pretend they're not there, ignore them, dismiss them, I am headed back to where I would not be able, even if I didn't want to, to pick up that first bite of, of food that I know that my body will not tolerate. So I am just so grateful to know that today and to know that there is recovery, and I can stay stopped. And um, I just want to thank everyone out here who has been so diligent to, uh, because of their recovered state, were able to open up my eyes and my ears to see the truth for what it is and know that a sick mind like myself must be restored and renewed, and I cannot do that any more than I can prevent myself from picking up that first bite. I have to have the grace of God in my life given me the courage to do and what I am not able to do in my own puny human willpower. And so I am so grateful to know that today and I'm so grateful to be abstinent. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Hi, this is Kathy in Boston. Thank you, Sharon. Bella's next, and then Kathy. Go ahead, Bella. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bella, and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Rebecca, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody that is on the line. I love, love, love this paragraph. Uh, our behavior is as absurd. Yes, I was in that picture. And I am laughing, and I don't know if, if, if it's a laugh or it's a cry, but it's so absurd. My be, our behavior is based on our thinking. And yes, before program, 
my thinking was sick. My thinking, my way of thinking was on the path on, of black and white. Well, I am angry now, and I am angry because of you, nothing to do with me, so I am running to the food. And I didn't, I didn't think, wait a minute, the, the food will help me with the anger, the food will solve me the anger. I didn't think, it's so absurd. And I ran back to the food, whatever feeling I felt, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I just have to run to the food. My behavior was absurd. And now, thank God, thank God, not anymore, not anymore. I am like, wow, I know that I... I, I am not looking for the power. I don't have control. Um, uh, yes, I know that God is here for me, and I am not the one that run my, my life. I am giving it over to the care of God, and it's nothing to do with me. And yes, I learned, thank God, thank God, I learned to think, to pose, and to say, well, okay, so Bella, now how do you feel? Oh, you feel angry? You feel jealous? No problem. How you can solve the problem? Not anymore the food. Thank God, thank God I got the tools to think and not to be afraid for my thinking, to face reality because I have now God in my life. Thank you for letting me share and I pass. Thank you, Bella. Kathy? Hi, Rebecca and everyone on the line. Thank you for your service, Rebecca. Um, I wanted to comment on the absurdity of the jaywalker's behavior um, and connect it to my own experience. I don't think I ever did before this morning um, recognize that um, my behavior before I became recovered uh, was quite absurd and for the, and let me say why I have been uh, diabetic type 1 diabetic for 27 years now and for many of those years uh, I would uh, when upset turn to the food I could go weeks um, being abstinent and then something would happen and I would binge um, and oftentimes I would get right back on, and my weight was uh, pretty much normal. Um, but what I wasn't recognizing was how I was killing myself, because every time I binged, my blood sugar would go out of whack uh, for a couple of days. And um, for anyone who knows the disease of diabetes, that's very serious. I was doing damage to my organs uh, and totally minimizing that fact. Um, and it is like running across the street like a jaywalker because of a passion. In my case, it was taking that first bite um, because I didn't like the way I was feeling um, and had no other coping skills. Um, and it wasn't until I really ardently worked through the steps 
that I develop the coping skills to deal with the feelings without having to take that first bite. Um, I'm so grateful to have a vital connection with my higher power today and to know how to do a a step 10, uh, sometimes many times a day, in order to achieve uh, peace and serenity so that the idea of taking a bite of something that's not part of my abstinent plan for the day no longer surfaces. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? Lauren, that's from Pittsburgh. Go ahead, Lauren. Thank you. Lauren S. from Pittsburgh, a recovered compulsive overeater. Good day, Walker. A helpful exercise I did was to substitute my behavior for this for this paragraph. And this outlines me perfectly. <laughs> you know, I get a thrill hanging out in food stores and shops. Lux then deserts Lauren, and she goes on a major bender of eating. Presently, she binges again, and this time has a medical complication. Within a week after leaving, she's back at the store for another binge. She tells you she's decided to stop binging for good, but in a few weeks, she's back binging. (laughs) Oh, my goodness gracious. And I think if you're... I think if you're anything like me and you've identified with Bill's progression, and you've identified with our fatal allergy and our, our twisted thinking and somebody like, like Jim, this jaywalker will fit you perfectly. And the, um, oh gosh. You know, I'm I'm actually just going to pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Anyone else? Okay, Paula D., would you like to go ahead with the next paragraph? Yes, this would be Paula D., recovered. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. Finally, he can no longer work. His wife gets a divorce and he is held up to ridicule. He tries every known means to get the jaywalking ideas out of his head. He shuts himself up in the asylum, hoping to mend his ways. But the day he comes out, he races in front of a fire engine which breaks his back. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? Well, we see it ends with a question, wouldn't he? This is the story that I least liked, and it's fabricated. This is the one that, what if? The other ones were real people. They gave them a name, as this one has, but yet, yet, this one made the most sense to me. It made the most sense because this is the way I lived. You wouldn't do that, would you? 
you know what the results are going to be. See, that's it. Somehow I fooled myself. Doesn't it say on that first page, illusion, delusion? Oh, I could go to either one. I'd bounce between the two, perhaps. But there it says. They would say to me, also as a diabetic, look, we're going to have to give you a steroid shot. Now, whatever you do, be very careful what you eat after this shot because it will elevate your blood sugar. Okay, didn't even pick up a bite to elevate my blood sugar. wasn't even my fault for crying out loud. Oh, no. Oh, no. As this man said, break his back. The very soul of you. And that is what happened. I went home and I ate. And I ate. With the knowledge of, and as it says, such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? So we must answer that for ourselves. Thank you for allowing me to share. With that, I do pass. Thank you, Paula. Who would like to share on this paragraph? Rebecca, this is Janice. Leah. Janice and then Leah. Yes, very briefly. Again, Janice, I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. You know, (laughs) this may seem, you know, crazy, but, you know, it fit, fit me exactly. Exactly this was me. Because... Over the years, I did the same behaviors, knowing the consequences. But you see, it was all about me that I continual, I continuously promised. I didn't see the, I saw the progression, but it didn't, you know, I wasn't normal. It wasn't normal thinking. Well, I'll stop sometime. You see, I thought in my head that there'll be a time on my own, on my own power, that I'll be able to stop this. I didn't realize that my disease is so progression unless I get a power that's, you know, um, if, unless I go through these steps and, and get a relationship with the power greater than myself. And, you know, I had to remember, he tries, he tries, he continued, um, continual, he promised. It's because he didn't know that he was powerless. See, I see this. He tried every means to get this idea out of his head. Now imagine, that was me. Every method known to man to stop this, to get it out of my head. I didn't realize that I couldn't get it out of my head because it wasn't about physical means. And I was trying all physical means. I wasn't, I didn't know about spiritual. So you see, the mind, who created my mind? Well, a power greater than myself created it, so he's the only one that can fix it. So it was all about me. You know, I lost the power of choice. Once I crossed that line, that was it, and there was no going back. So, yeah, I do relate this. I did do some geographical cures. That didn't work. I, 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 I didn't know that I was powerless. And with that, I passed. Thanks. Thank you, Janice. Leah? Thanks so much, Rebecca. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah M., a recovered compulsive overeater. On through the years, this conduct continues, accompanied by his continual promises 
to be careful or to keep off the streets altogether. You know, when I read this, um, this conduct continues. It just reminds me of the progression of my disease. Uh, it never gets better. It always gets worse. I mean, obviously, the big book now is using the jaywalker, which is an absurd example, of course, but it's using the absurd to, to help spotlight the absurd. My behavior was absurd, much like our previous comments. You know, um, <laughs> you know, I kept, uh, I had a mind that kept taking me back to that which was killing me. I could not remember the suffering of, um, you know, the day before, for goodness sakes. You know, I would go to bed with tears streaming down these uh, eyeballs, <laughs> uh, tears so hot they would, like, burn my cheeks. And yet the next day I'd be at it again. Um, you know, and there was an evolution of this behavior, a progression of this behavior from uh, just like the jaywalker here, from not wanting to stop jaywalking um, or drinking, of course, because it's too much fun, to not being able to stop due to the peculiar mental twist or that obsession on the mind. And that was true for me, too. You know, initially, I did not want to stop compulsive overeating, uh, you know, binging because, quote-unquote, it was too much fun. And it progressed to not being able to stop due to this obsession of the mind that we're reading about here. You know, those chains of compulsive overeating were much too soft to be felt until they were much too hard to be broken. That was true for me. It goes on to say he tries every known means to get the jaywalking idea out of his head. I mean, I tried all kinds of remedies, you know, all kinds of methods. Uh, you know, if only I had a right relationship, perhaps, or if only I had the right degree, if only I lived in the right city, if only I had the right job, you know, all these different uh, external conditions. But external conditions are never the remedy for someone like me because I have an internal condition called compulsive overeating. And this mental obsession would take possession of me. It would essentially hijack me without my permission. And, of course, you know, an obsession of the mind is a thought that dominates the mind in such a way that it becomes the only thought. And since it's the only thought at some point... I don't even know it's the only thought. It's the only thought I, I can have. So I don't have the opportunity in those moments to have the self-reflection that it's the only thought, if you get what I'm talking about. It's very per perverse. Such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's true. Yes. You know, I needed to be put back together, and not by my own hand. I needed to be put back together by the Master's hand. Because no matter where I went, there I was, for goodness sake. You know, and, and, and this was a sense of ease and comfort that I was pursuing, and eventually it cut me to ribbons. It cut me to ribbons. I was bloodied and mangled by this illness. There is no doubt about that. I had to be awakened up. I had to have an awakened spirit that uh, I was able to, uh, to experience through these 12 steps so that I could have spiritual wings 
in order to fly. And the 12 steps were that direct route because I had looked outside of myself to experience God. And you know what? I was going to need to experience God within. You know, the journey in the steps was to go in, (laughs) to get free of the ism. I needed a new mind, a spirit-guided mind, and I got that through the process of these 12 steps. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to share on this paragraph? Sarah. Go ahead, Sarah. Uh, good morning, H from New York. Uh, Sarah W. from Iowa. Yeah. Um, good morning, Rebecca. Thank you for your service. And um, good morning to everyone that's on the line. And uh, especially a warm welcome to all the newcomers. Um, I was thinking about the rebelliousness of the addict personality when we were talking about this. Um, you know, the thrill seeker. I know I have that personality trait, you know. Um, you know, the, the insanity of all this, when you think about it, uh, it does make the comment, if he were normal. <laughs> um, you know, that's the insanity of it. You know, so many of us think that we're normal, and and I think that's where the first step really comes in. We have to, you know, completely admit to our innermost selves that we are you know, really a real compulsive overeater that we have this illness and it's not just about the food as was stated so many times this morning. Um, and, and you know, the rebellious part of my personality and the thrill seeker, you know, those are typical, whether you be a compulsive overeater, an alcoholic, a drug addict, that's that's typical of our personalities. And, you know, that that... No one's going to tell me what to do. Uh, you know, nonconformity, um, and and also what I hear and and see is the self-destructive nature. Uh, you know, I had somebody ask me yesterday who I was working with. She said, "How do you not eat when when life happens?" And thank God for the second step. You know, that the idea that we have the hope that you know a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Because, you know, sitting in this first step and not having that one, what, what do you do? Well, you eat because, you know, it's too painful. So, you know, today I'm tr- truly grateful for that. And, and the w- last thing I wanted to say is it's all about, you know, what I want is what I want, and I don't care if you're in my way, I'm going to get what I want. And, you know, the selfishness and self-centeredness of that And with the steps, you know, especially with the four through nine, we find compassion, not only for other people, but really for ourselves, because we see what we've done to ourselves. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Someone else spoke up who wanted to go next. I didn't get a name. Sue G. Sue G. Go ahead, Sue. Okay, um, this is Sue G. from Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia. I had a recent experience that struck me as absurd, and it, but it was a relapse, or let's call it, it was a decision. Um, and I thought it kind of illustrates something for me, all of these paragraphs. Um, 
I was in a very vulnerable state a few months ago, and I was making some decisions about things, including about what to do with some mild degree of chronic depression that has always responded to uh, therapy or therapy and a little medication, and I wasn't doing that stuff. And I had made a decision I was going to go back, and I think I even had an appointment at this point. And I really let my tenth step go in this. So with that as background, um, one day, a few days before the appointment, because I was really into this appointment going to cure my problems, and I was going to just do the compulsive eater thing of ignoring the fact that I am a compulsive eater and I better pay attention to it. So somebody called me uh, from fellowship, and she was really griping a lot, and it was getting to be deep griping. If I had been doing my 10th step and internalizing a little bit of where was this coming from in me, I would have spoken up for myself and just said politely to her, well, I think I have to go now. Let's continue this another time, because I was getting in over my head with her, her complaints, and it wasn't good for me. It probably wasn't good for her either. But anyway, I listened and I listened and finally hung up after a long chit-chat. And shortly after that, it was after dinner, and there was a loaf of hulla sitting on the table with slices. Now, I do not eat. Part of my eating plan is not to eat after dinner. Dinner was over. I, I opened this bag, and this, this bread is the bread of my face. I open the bag. I take a piece of the bread. I rip it in half, and I go, chomp. And I bit that, and I ate that entire little piece. Now, I decided this this was a bad decision, that it, it was uh, on the borders of relapse. It was a relapse that, that I was engaging in food behavior that I don't normally do. And, and I really, uh, I see the reason, and it, you know, it became obvious to me afterwards. But I, I decided, well, now... I sponsor some people. I'm going to have to tell them I can't sponsor them for 30 days. That's because the rules around here. And that I was going to have to, when they ask for abstinence sponsors in a meeting, I was not an abstinence sponsor right then. And I had to to do that. And I have to say that, and, and I really kind of saw myself as, I, I was like the jaywalker. I mean, it was so literal. I bit this piece of bread, chomp, I'm biting you, you know. Um, and, and that was not good for me. But what happened when I was honest, open, and willing about it was a few things. One, I realized that I wasn't doing my 10th step regularly, and that was a big flip. Uh, two, I realized that I better consider doing another fourth step because going back to therapy opens up a whole lot of things, and you're going to get to the next layer for sure. So you better be open to these things. And three, it really helped with the people I was sponsoring, which I wasn't, I wasn't sponsoring them then, and their responses to, I, I was honest about what happened, their responses to it. Um, and one person decided, well, um, this person wanted me to be sponsor, and I said, well, you may want that, but I'm not your sponsor now. And we worked out something where we talked to one another, where all I did was share when it was my turn. I, I gave no opinion about things, which I would as a sponsor, at, at least at times, and I would guide, but I didn't do that either. And uh, 30 days were up, 
and I was back on my 10th step, and I was back in therapy for my other problem, which I was accepting with a little step one work on that, and I feel a whole lot better now. And I thought the whole thing was ridiculous because I think God was laughing because there I was, chomp on the holy bread, and uh, and and I, I started laughing too when I took responsibility for myself. So thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Suji. Okay, you know what? We've come to the end of our meeting. And I will ask, if she's available, Janice M., to read A Vision for You on page 164. Janice M., are you available? I'm here, Rebecca. Okay. Thank you so much. Yes. Certainly. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something that you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then, pass.